After spending 30 years in a Coast Guard uniform, my next guest has donned a business suit and joined the Senior Executive Service. But he's still with the Coast Guard as the new Deputy Assistant Commandant for Intelligence. Jeffrey Radgowski joins me now. Well, let's begin with the intelligence service, the intelligence function at the Coast Guard itself. What is it you cover as the Deputy Assistant Commandant there? You may know the Coast Guard has 11 statutory missions. I won't list them all, but people are often familiar with our protection of safety of life at sea, which typically involves search and rescue. A lot of migration cases are involved in that protection of safety of life at sea, counter-narcotics, particularly in the Caribbean or Eastern Pacific. There's a big push, particularly now, for countering illegal, unreported, unregulated fishing and fisheries laws writ large. So those are just a few examples, but Coast Guard intelligence is the driver to execute those missions, as well as providing decision makers in the Coast Guard and beyond at every level, how we want to go about doing that mission and sort of what our risk calculus is to do a mission. And I'm guessing one of the challenges in a job like that is dealing with all of the other federal components in the Defense Department, elsewhere in your own Homeland Security Department, that also impinge on this whole topic and deciding who does what and making sure you're all on the same sheet of music. Interesting point. I, I would actually offer that it's, it's been a big benefit for us to have all of those partners. And I've found it through working with a lot of them really powerful to be able to partner with those organizations. Our, our lanes in the road through those statutory missions are pretty clear. And then those partners, whether it's Customs and Border Protection, Department of Defense, FBI, we usually find a, a natural space where we can work together. So I've been, like I said, pleasantly uh, surprised and I actually feel very empowered when I work with those other organizations. And for the Coast Guard, is the issue of intelligence gathering, like it is elsewhere, a combination of human intelligence and also signals intelligence and observation? What are the components that go into the activity? So we have sort of a a pretty broad expanse of of intelligence capabilities. We have some from law enforcement as a regulatory agency, and we're a member of the national intelligence community as well. So we use our authorities, if you will, from each of those. And that could be something from a Coast Guard sector, one of our smaller units, could be anywhere along the U.S. coast to our largest units, such as our Intelligence Coordination Center, which is here in the D.C. area, that provides that strategic communication. And I wanted to mention something or have you talk about something I noticed in your background as listed by the Coast Guard. Pretty interesting thing that you did was a, quote, instrumental in establishing a holistic organic intelligence specialist rating for the Coast Guard. So, in effect, you invented a position that seems crucial to the Coast Guard. Right. I wouldn't take credit for inventing it, but I was in the Coast Guard when we were just standing it up, and I was part of a much bigger team. But a lot of what we were trying to figure out is, what does that need to look like? How do we recruit people that we want to come in? How do we train them? How do we get them up to speed to do those things I talked about earlier in terms of executing our mission? How do we get that decision advantage? So that was a big part of the intelligence specialist workforce of the Coast Guard. And how do we partner, going back to your previous question, how do we partner with some of those other organizations to make them the best that they can be in terms of getting the training that they need? It was pretty exciting. It's still evolving today, if you will. And, and uh, I would say probably one of the most gratifying parts of my work is you know seeing somebody that's now a chief, a senior enlisted member that I knew when they were very junior and, and just watching all the really powerful things that they've done for the service and how they've developed. I think all of us in the service, when we see the progression of the intelligence specialist rating, is something we're proud of. And that rating is for people in uniform, or are there also civilians in the Coast Guard with a rating like that? 
The rating itself is just for the uh, enlisted workforce in uniform, but there is a significant component of the Coast Guard intelligence enterprise that is civilian, and we get a lot of continuity. We get a lot of really specific expertise from the folks that are in the civilian status in the Coast Guard. All right. We're speaking with Jeffrey Radgowski. He is the Coast Guard's Deputy Assistant Commandant for Intelligence, and your work in uniform took you quite far afield. Give us some of the highlights of around the world where you served. I think Russia is part of that. Yes, uh, I was in Russia. That was my last assignment. Before that, I had served in the Dominican Republic and did some work in Haiti from there. I was also assigned to Venezuela. And when I was assigned there, I was accredited to all of the Eastern Caribbean countries. So for uh, the Eastern Caribbean chain, countries such as St. Kitts and Nevis, Dominica, Grenada, all the way down to Trinidad and Tobago and Guyana. And then I also did some time in Afghanistan. And additionally, I was assigned to European Command based out of Stuttgart, Germany, but got to work with a lot of the uh, Coast Guards from there. So I felt very blessed to be able to get that type of international experience. And also going back to see how we can work with the other Coast Guards of the world, because we realized that the ocean is just too big for one of us to cover any of those mission issues that I mentioned before. It's interesting when you talk about Russia because, you know, some interviews I've had over the years with people in law enforcement and intelligence and cybersecurity, it may not seem obvious, but there's a lot of cooperation between the United States and Russia. If you get below that top political level, there are common worldwide problems that we cooperate with them on. I think that even happens now. And would you say that's something people should know about? Yeah, this is obviously a tough time right now, relationship-wise, but I think particularly if you look at the North Pacific and just how vast a space that is, if you look at the area between sort of the U.S. and Canada and the Russian coastline, you can fit the area, the landmass of the United States in that space. And that space is very fertile for fishing, so some of the most fertile fishing areas of the world are there. And going back to that countering IUU, illegal, unregulated, unreported fishing, that's something that Russia and the U.S. is both very concerned about and so something that we need to work together and as well as you look at potential pollution response in that area or if you look at search and rescue in that area there's no way that any one country can cover something that vast sure i guess bitcoin is about the only thing that can be illegally transported but not by a ship (laughs) that's a good point right all right and now that you are running the intelligence operation for the coast guard what are your priorities for the coming year So I actually work for Admiral Sugimoto. He's running the Coast Guard Intelligence Enterprise, but I try to shape and execute those priorities that we have. They're pretty simple, building a workforce that's ready to do the mission. And that sounds simple, but again, getting the right people in, training them, getting them to understand our mission and be experts at our mission so that they can support the larger Coast Guard is number one. And it really dovetails into into number two of, you know, how do we go about supporting that mission, giving our decision makers, particularly operators, timely information that they can get the way they need it, getting ahead of the problem sets to warn them and inform the decision makers to execute the mission. That's two. Three is sharpening the capabilities we have. Everything is evolving so fast globally that we need to evolve our service as well. The problem sets we had three, five, ten years ago, we can't solve them the way we were then. So that's the sharpening of those capabilities. And those capabilities run on IT, information technology system, that we've got to modernize. It's the backbone for all of the intelligence that we're working with. And so we've got to make sure ours is resilient and it's reliable and it's secure. So that's our fourth priority And then the fifth one is looking at the Coast Guard as an organization. 
the intelligence organization. How do we optimize it? Do we have legacy structures in place that we need to transform or, or move in a way that they can be more successful to supporting the service as a whole? And so those are the five top priorities right now. All right. And I wanted to ask one question about that workforce. You have to recruit the people to get that status and that training in intelligence. Can someone in uniform be told that even though you will be in intelligence with the Coast Guard, if that's your choice, you still get to go to sea and work from floating vessels? It's not just desk work. Yeah, we have a significant portion of our intelligence workforce that is working at sea. And I would say that those that do, they can be at sea for quite a long time. So it's challenging. But at the same time, I think they see firsthand those real issues that we have as a service. They're doing and supporting the mission there. So yes, the intelligence specialist rating is a very uh, seaborne rating, if you will. All right. And again, you were 30 years in uniform, and one morning you came in not in uniform. Did people throw things at you and make fun of you, or was that a pretty easy transition? <laughs> it's been pretty easy. I think the, the toughest one is people ask, do they need to call me Captain Radgowski or Mr. Radgowski? But one of the real benefits of the Coast Guard Intelligence Organization is a lot of the folks have grown up together, if you will, through different assignments. And, and that was one of the big attractions coming back is to be able to work for folks I had worked with before. So they have made it an easy your transition, but it is a little bit strange having to pick out your suit from the closet. It was pretty easy knowing what you just put on that blue uniform every day and off you went. But I've enjoyed it so far, and it's a great team we have here. Well, nobody ever went wrong with a white shirt, and then you can wear any color tie you want. <laughs> right. All right. Jeffrey Radgowski is the Coast Guard's Deputy Assistant Commandant for Intelligence. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she 
work during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm 
fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.